One of my all-time favorite books is the biography of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was the founder of Apple. And maybe you've heard in the news that Apple recently became the first trillion-dollar company. Trillion dollars. I don't want to get all, you know, mathematical on you guys, but that's like a lot of money. It's an astronomical amount. Trillion dollars. There are, there are countries who don't have a trillion dollars. And Apple has a trillion. Uh, it's pretty incredible. In this book, I learned all about Steve Jobs' life. And there was a point where he was actually fired from Apple. He was fired from the very company that he founded. Uh, now, whether or not he took delight in this, we don't really know. But after he was fired, Apple began to tank. Uh, they were not doing well at all. Jobs was out. He was heartbroken, but he was learning a lot of important lessons for his leadership. And, and there was a point where he got brought back on to lead Apple once again. And one of the first things that he did is he got all of the leadership in a room, and he had them start telling him all of the products that they were currently producing, everything that Apple was doing. And he wrote it all on a giant whiteboard, and he filled up the entire board with all of these different products. It was very complicated, very ineffective, and Apple had transitioned from this company birthed to try and change the world to a company trying to protect their bottom line. And so Steve Jobs did one of the most important things ever in the history of Apple, the thing that put them on the path to being the first trillion dollar company. He erased the board. He took it all off. He said, we're not doing any of this. He drew a very simple four-quadrant matrix. He said, we're going to do four things. We're going to do them with excellence, and we are going to change the world again. And that laser-like focus and that simplicity transformed Apple into the company that we know today and that percentage-wise probably most of you have right now in your pockets with your iPhones you know, a couple years ago, I was looking around at the state that the church is in, losing influence, churches permanently closing their doors all of the time, the butt of all of the jokes in popular culture, uh, just this really weak, frail organizations that we call church. And I started thinking about it through the lens of what happened in the boardroom that day at Apple. And I thought, what if churches were forced to sit and put everything they're doing, what they're spending their time, energy, and resources on, on a whiteboard? And just in my own ministry and working for churches and working with tons of churches, I realized that they would be very complicated whiteboards and that it would be very hard to find the purpose and the real meaning behind much of what the modern church is doing. We do things because it's tradition, because it's what we've always done, because someone started it and we don't want to hurt their feelings. And so a year ago, when I got the opportunity to come out to be the lead pastor, I got together with some of our staff. We went out to a little retreat. And really what we did that day is we erased the board. And we said, we're going to look at what's going on in the New Testament of our Bibles. We're going to look at what happened when the movement of Jesus started, and we are going to radically prioritize Jesus' original intention for our lives and for his movement, and that's all we are going to do. We're going to make it simple. And so we got on that path. We've seen amazing things. 
We've seen growth here in our weekend gatherings. We've seen hundreds of people go through our classes that we offer to try to get us healthy so that we can fire on all cylinders as we're out in our world trying to make a difference. And on September the 9th, we are going to launch the third part of this vision. It's very simple. We didn't have four quadrants. We have three circles. We gather on the weekend. We gather as individuals. And we gather as teams. And we're going to do that September 9th. We're going to get you signed up. We're going to get you out of just sitting in rows. And we're going to get you in circles of other people. But with everything we do here at City West, we root it in Scripture. We don't make up truth. We don't decide it for ourselves. We discover it in the pages of Scripture. And we do everything we can to apply it to our lives. And, and what, what we saw when we started looking at this uh, early movement of Jesus, the movement in the first couple of centuries that went all the way around the world with no internet, with no YouTube, email, Facebook, they had no resources. And yet this movement under persecution, on the run, circled the entire globe and changed our world. And we want to know how they did it so that we can replicate it in our own time. And we saw that when it came to these circles of people, they did three things. They would gather, they would grow, and they would go. Gather, grow, go. That's what our life teams are going to be about. And over the next three weeks, we're going to look at each of these. Uh, we're basing it out of one very simple passage of scripture in Acts 2.42. This is the description of the very first church, the church in Jerusalem. And it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We're going to look at this over the next three weeks. Today, we're going to be focusing on fellowship and the breaking of bread these small organic gatherings of people who got in circles to love each other and challenge each other and apply the words of truth that we're hearing in our large gatherings so that they could really make a difference in their world. You know, we look around and we see how complicated religion has become. And because it's so complicated, it has created complications for religion, complications for the church. And when Jesus came to earth, he came into a very similar environment. He was born into the Jewish religion, and it had become incredibly complicated. The Jewish religion has the Torah, which has 613 laws. 613 laws. You were expected to obey all of them. They covered every aspect of your life. And over the centuries, the religious leaders created hundreds and hundreds of extra laws. And the new laws were there to help you follow the original laws. And so you had thousands of laws that you were expected to follow. And what happens when you focus so much on the rules, so much on dotting the I's and crossing the T's, is that over time they started worshiping the law itself instead of worshiping the God that it was supposed to be pointing them towards. And this is called legalism. And it creeps in so easily. It's powerful like gravity. You have to actively fight it because legalism gives religious leaders a sense of control over their people. And people are not to be controlled. They're to be set free and empowered. Legalism is part of the death of the traditional view of church. Jesus walked in and he fought against this. After he left earth, he gave his disciples the power and authority to go and to push forward his movement and they fought 
against it. And today we're going to look at one of the most amazing churches, this congregation of people in the New Testament. This is during the first century. It's just a few decades after Jesus was actually physically on the earth. And the Apostle Paul, who is someone who started many of the early churches, he was a missionary. He wrote many books of the New Testament uh, in our Bibles. The Apostle Paul started a church in a city called Thessalonica. And he wrote them two letters, and these letters are in the New Testament of our Bibles. They're called 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, because the people who named the books of the Bible were not creative geniuses. 1st Thessalonians, 2nd Thessalonians, that's pretty easy. If there was a third letter, they would probably call it 3rd Thessalonians, just a guess, but it's an educated one. And we have the letter to this church recorded for us, and I want you to hear how Paul talks to them. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. And we recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, and your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He said we think about your work and your labor and your endurance. And Paul is showing us his metrics of what a meaningful, powerful movement looks like. These are action words. These aren't about input. These are about output. We thank God for the work that you're doing, even though you're being persecuted by society. We thank God for your labor of love to spread the gospel to people who really don't even want to hear it. We thank God for your endurance in the midst of trials. And I'm not talking about first world problem trials. I'm not talking they didn't get enough double taps on their Instagram post and they're a little bit mad about it. They didn't get a flat tire in their $50,000 car and feel like they needed to pray about it. These people were being torn apart from their families. Property was being seized, excommunicated from their communities, disowned by family members because they were a part of the movement of Jesus. Paul doesn't say we thank God for you because you memorize the most verses. It's a good thing to do. He doesn't say we're glad because we heard you sing louder than everyone else sings. And your hand is higher in worship than everyone else. And you traded all of your shirts for cheesy Christian t-shirts. Everyone wears Tom's and you exclusively eat at Chick-fil-A so you can eat the Lord's chicken. He's not talking about input, he's talking about output. We thank God for your work and for your labor, not just that you meet together, but that you're actually moving together. And this is the result, verse seven. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, that's the surrounding area, and Achaia, which is a neighboring area. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in those places, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. The church in Thessalonica was the standard, the example for all of the other congregations that Paul and the other apostles were starting. You can read all of the New Testament And you will not find higher praise for a group of people than you will find in the book of 1 Thessalonians for the church that Paul had started in Thessalonica. He was so proud. He talks in this book about how he's proud 
like a father. The Apostle Paul, a man, talks about how he is proud like a mother. He doesn't even know how to describe to them how proud he is of the work that they are doing. He sets them as the standard. And so as a pastor, my first inclination is, well, what did he do? What was the strategy? How did he get a group of people, many of them pagan, some of them Jewish, but many of them Greek? Some of them who had heard about the Messiah and God, and some of them who had no clue. And he got this group of people to start living in the midst of persecution so radically that he singles them out among all the other churches that he had started in his career. And so what, what did he do? What steps did he take them through? And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we begin to see some of the answer. Chapter 2, verse 8, it says, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own lives. We cared so much for you that we didn't just preach to you in, in rows, but then we circled up with you in your real life. We didn't just come into this planned event where there's a flow and lighting and cues and, and structure, but we organically gave our lives to you. And, and the whole experiment of whether or not it's good enough to simply come to church one hour a week and check it off your box and let's see if the world gets better has failed. The world is not getting better. Churches are dying. They have lost their influence. It's not enough to just preach the gospel. Sometimes you got to go be the gospel. I don't have a problem with Christian t-shirts. I, well, do I? Do I have I was going to say, I don't have a problem with, with a scripture Facebook, and it's a selfie, and it's a scripture, and I don't know what the scripture has to do with the selfie. It feels like you just wanted to take a selfie and justify it so that you put scripture on there. I, I don't know. Maybe you have your reasons. I don't have a problem with any of the input. You should be listening to worship music. You should be reading your Bible. It's the word of God. He's trying to speak to you through it, and some of you aren't picking it up. You need the input, but you got to have the output. And the person in the cubicle next to you who, who is sitting there slowly dying of depression and anxiety and heartbreak and misery and hopelessness and insignificance, they love that you listen to K-Love at work, but they need you to stand up and be loved to them at work. We didn't just give you the gospel. We gave you our lives. And so I wondered, man, how much, how much time did Paul spend with them? I mean, if you want an elite team, an elite crew, it takes some time. It takes some investment, something that you're going to give your life to. You know, he says in, in verse 9, you remember our labor and hardship. Working night and day, we preach the gospel to you. Night and day and day and night. We preached the gospel to you. How many years did Paul get in Thessalonica? How long did he get to stay? And it's not in 1 Thessalonians. It's actually in the book of Acts. If you don't know in your New Testament, the book of Acts is a historical record of the beginning of the church, the movement of Jesus. And it tells us in Acts 17 that Paul came from Philippi. It's where the book of Philippians 
is written. He came from Philippi into Thessalonica, and he stayed there for three, not three years, not three months. Paul was there for a total of three weeks. 21 days he got to spend at the church in Thessalonica. Jews and Gentiles, believers and pagans, who at the end of three weeks were so radically giving their life to the movement of Jesus that Paul says they are the example for all other believers who are a part of the movement. Night and day, we preach the gospel. This was Paul's strategy. He would show up and he would teach in the synagogue. That was the local gathering just like this, a specific time, a specific place, with a specific flow. He would stand up and preach there, but then he would give his life to them night and day, get out of rows and into circles, and love them and help them apply this to their life. He goes on and says, you are witnesses and so is God of how devoutly, righteously and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. And as you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each of you to live worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We didn't urge and comfort and encourage and implore you to look like a Christian or pretend everything's all right and make sure that you are at church on Sunday and get a perfect attendance award. We encouraged and implored you to live it out. 21 days, night and day. I had a professor one time who said, you know, let's look kind of at uh, the average a day of work at this time and in this culture. And, and let's look at kind of some things like they didn't have electricity, right? So they would have to at some point turn it in with a night. He said, let's just say this is real conservative. But let's say that for 21 days, Paul spent five hours a day with these believers. Because he says, you're a witness and so is God. That night and day we were preaching the gospel. Let's conservatively say five hours a day he spent with them. Five hours a day for 21 days, 105 hours of investing into these people's life. And then Paul was run out of town because they were going to kill him. People were persecuting the church. 105 hours. Now let's look at the current methodology for the vast, vast number of believers who are a part of a church. You show up Sunday. You sit for an hour Hour and ten if I'm preaching. Sit for an hour. Check it off your list. And if you're not busy, you come back next week. Three weeks, 105 hours. If all you're doing is an hour on Sunday, it would take you two years without missing one single Sunday just to get to the same number. In two years, most people are doing what Paul did in three weeks. It's an investment and Paul's strategy everywhere he went was to show up to their synagogue or if there wasn't a synagogue because it wasn't a place where Jewish people lived then he would go to the marketplace he would gather among the philosophers he would get somewhere where people sit in rows and he looks this way and they look this way and he would teach and he would preach and he would encourage and then he would give his life to them night and day preaching the gospel. Today we're talking about fellowship 
and the breaking of bread. We're talking about how the early church would gather together, they would grow together, and then they would go and serve and move and make a difference. This is our chance to encourage and implore you to, to not just come and meet at our gatherings, but when we start launching to get in a life team. You know, a lot of churches, are, I like it and it's smart. We were just talking about this in the green room. And this isn't to pick at anybody, I promise. But a lot, a lot of churches' slogan is, welcome home. Welcome home. Come in with 500 other people. Welcome home. And the reason it's great marketing is because people are looking for community. Because we were created for community. Because God put Adam down on this earth and he had endless resources and a perfect life and everything you would want. And he still wasn't complete because he needed community. Welcome home. Come in. Get your community. And let me assure you what we're doing right now, the big circle, the gathering, this is not community. Community doesn't happen in rows. It happens in circles. And if you get that confused, you will think that you're meeting the need of community in your life and you will still have something empty inside of you because the reality is that you need to get in a circle with people who love you enough to hold you accountable to the life you're living and help you apply the truth of scripture to your actual real life. He tells us to gather. You know, the Jewish religion was based on a place. It was based on the temple. And there's a good reason because the spirit of God lived in that temple. He lived behind a veil. They called it the Holy of Holies. And the night that Jesus died, that veil ripped in half. And it was a symbol for what we now know that everyone who believes in Jesus, that same spirit of God comes and lives inside of us. So we don't go to church, we are the church. And we don't have church on Sunday mornings because we set up chairs and have a sound system. We have church on Sunday morning because you guys come in and fill the seats. And the reality is that on Sunday morning, this bar turns into a church because you guys are here gathered together. But if you showed up on Saturday night to the bar, church would be there as well. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to be a church that actually moves that understands our authority and understands our power and understand that the spirit of God is inside of us. And when you sign up for one of these life teams here in a couple of weeks and you get out of rows and you get in a circle with some other people, that's church as well. And when you show up to work or to the gym or to your family reunion or to your kid's school or to your dinner table with people who are hurting and who do need some hope, they're in luck because church just showed up. We're pushing life teams. We're showing you it in scripture because it matters. The writer to the Hebrews said this, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful and let us watch out for one another to provoke each other to love and to good works. I always think of provoking in such a negative sense and I probably think of it that way because I'm a little bit of a provoker. You know, in school, I normally wasn't in the fights. I was just the guy going, hey, you won't hit him. Probably, you probably won't hit him, right? And then I'd run. Right? I don't want to fight. I just want to provoke it and see what happens. But here it's used in this positive sense. Getting in a circle of people who love you enough to go, 
Man, is your life worth living in a way where you're not making a difference to anybody? Someone who will provoke you to actually live in your purpose, who loves you enough to not settle for the status quo of culture of trying to find significance apart from your created intent. Let us provoke each other to love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. This is another letter written to another group of people who were being persecuted, whose property was being seized, whose families were being divided, whose lives were being threatened. And still he says, don't give it up. I know that by gathering together and getting a bunch of believers in the same room, you're putting yourself in very real danger, but it is so important that you should do it anyway. Now, we're not under persecution. Our lives aren't in danger. But we are very busy. We're the busiest generation that's ever existed. And it's not all healthy busy. There was a time when people worked from sun up to sundown just to survive. It's a different kind of busy. We have the busyness created by our convenience. And our convenience creates a lot of space. And we're uncomfortable with space, so we fill it all up. And for some of you, you like the idea of life teams and you're not going to argue with what we're saying because it's coming out of scripture and you don't want to argue with scripture. But if you're really honest with yourself on September 9th when people are getting signed up, you're going to go check your kids out and you're going to beat the crowd home because you don't have room in your schedule for it. And it's real. I'm not saying it's not real. We're very, very busy people and you're doing a lot of really important things. And if that's you, I want to ask you, to consider getting in front of your own whiteboard and filling it with everything you're doing in your life. Because there are some things that you're spending a lot of time on that don't have ultimate purpose, that aren't pushing you towards your created calling, and that are causing you to live in a way where your life isn't making much of a difference in the world around you. And for some of you, it's time to erase the board. For some of you, it's time to decide as parents or as young people or as singles or as single parents or as middle schoolers to take a look at what you're doing to erase the board and start over. To decide what you're going to give your life to. To decide the things you're going to take ownership of. To decide to pursue what God has for you. And what we're going to encourage you from this stage is do not neglect to gather together. Not just in rows. I love what we do here on Sundays. Not just in rows, but in circles. In a team that you are living life with. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. And we trust you. And we see the blueprint in Scripture of not just coming in and getting more and more information, but getting in community with each other where we can actually put it to work, where we can see a difference in our world. So I pray, God, that you would give people the same motivation uh, to do what Steve Jobs had to do to right the ship. God, to get it all on the board and to look at what really matters. Maybe for some of us to erase the board and build it from scratch 
God, to not let life just pass us by, to not look back 10 years with regrets for how we spent our time, but to take ownership of our lives. You've given us the ability to decide how we're going to spend our time here on earth. And I pray that we would choose you. We love you. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.